Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. My name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My guest this week is a self-confessed sex geek who is on a mission to make it safe and normal for all people to talk about sexuality. Emily Powersmith is a sexologist and a sex therapist with a master's degree in sexology. She is also a professional member of the World Association of Sexual Health. Emily is absolutely passionate about providing current and factual information about sexuality so that people are equipped to make good choices about their own sexual health, their well-being and their safety. She provides, and this is the bit I really like, she provides science-based, non-religious, non-judgmental and up-to-date sexual health education for children and, of course, for people of all ages. And she includes in those lessons for children, which I think is really, really important, having been born in the 60s and lived through the 70s and 80s, etc. That includes lessons in sexual esteem and sexual boundaries. And actually even just talking about sex is something that was just utterly foreign when I was growing up and even when I was a teenager. And I mean that even amongst teens, sex wasn't talked about. It was completely taboo. You can learn more about the services that Emily provides on her website, which has a fabulous name, empowersme.com. I love the play on your own surname there. Emily, I am so excited for this episode. And gosh, I don't know how we're going to pack it all into an episode. There's so many questions. Maybe we'll get you back again next season. But thank you so much for joining me. Can we just start by you explaining what is sexology? Sure, and it's lovely to be here. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So sexology is the scientific study of human sexuality, and it borrows from all the other ologies, psychology, sociology, criminology. I'm going to not be able to think of any more ologies, but all, all the ologies that there are, because it's looking at not only the sexual acts that people engage in, but also their attitudes and their beliefs, and also the social context within which people are sexual. So it covers a very broad range of human elements in order for us to understand sexuality, in order to understand gender, orientation, and all the other things that go with sexuality, different types of sexualities, and the variety that is scientifically shown to exist now. So it's a very broad, but very comprehensive way of studying sexuality. And my master's in sexology, I did it in Australia. And it was um, basically, if I hadn't already been a qualified therapist uh, for a number of years prior to doing my master's, I would have then had to train in therapy to be a sex therapist. The sexology master's that I chose to do is a broad training that then you would specialize in a field within. So for example, you might go into advocacy, education, therapy, or even forensic sexology, which I also trained in, which is the darker side of sexuality, the bit that gets people into trouble or the illegal parts. So my training gave me a great basis upon which I could do this work. And it was really, it's been really, really useful. So on top of sexology though, it's important to say that I'm sex positive because you can do the training, you can do training in anything, as you know, and then your belief system and your value system will color how you 
practice that training that you've received. So sex positivity is really, really important to me. And I think it's actually, I don't believe people who aren't sex positive, I don't believe they should be working with sexuality. I think it's that important. And what it is, is as a sex positive practitioner or therapist, I am only interested in, are you having fun? Are you consenting? And are you safe? That's it. I'm not interested in your weight, your height, your color, your religion. I'm not interested in your abilities, your gender, your orientation or your kink, if you have one. All I'm interested in is, are you safe? Are you consenting? And are you having pleasure? Oh, that's really, really interesting. Thank you so much for that. I took a tiny module when I did psychology on human sexuality because it's just fascinating and we know so little about it. And one thing that I remember jumping out to me on taking that was really most of the research that's done on human sexuality, certainly sorted to that point, was from the Kinsey studies, et cetera, was really around, if I'm correct, and I could be misremembering, but there's been no sort of study of just normal everyday sexuality. It's more been things that maybe fall outside the general, if there is a general, but you know what I mean, outside what, and I hate to use the word normal range, but outside the average, the studies were, and then from that things were inferred or even not from that, from people's actually personal perspective, uh, things were inferred about what's normal, abnormal, etc. Yeah, you're right. If we don't have the research, if we don't have empirical evidence, we are basically just going on opinions, right? Our own opinions and our own experiences. And that's really dangerous. And particularly when you're talking about sexuality, because there's so much judgment and stigma and shame, particularly in Ireland, but not just in Ireland, about people's sexual lives and practices and and tastes and values. So if we're not coming from a place of science and a place of research that is reliable research, not just YouTube research, but reliable research. Absolutely. Scientific research. And scientific peer reviewed, you know, because even scientific research has to be questioned, doesn't it, these days? Oh, it does. No, absolutely. And I should say that. So, you know, the scientific method is very clear around, for example, you don't try and find data to prove what you believe. You actually are trying to disprove what your hypothesis is. That's one of the grounding things. And there's various rules about having control groups and all that sort of thing when you're doing scientific research. But even within that, we have, for example, what's called a publication bias. So if you find something, it is more likely to be published than something where you don't. So, for example, that happens a lot with even if you talk about differences between Mm. male and female brain, to to use those narrow gender stereotypes, you are more likely to read about differences because that's the publication bias of where if you don't find differences, it's unlikely to be published. So we have this whole distorted thing within science. Um, But I think if people understand, and and that's one thing that I'm passionate about in terms of educating kids and people, you know, is how to make critical decisions about the value of the information that you're taking on board. I agree. I think it's it's actually a life skill that needs to be taught. It should just be taught in schools. Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. It is a life skill because so much is dependent. We make so many decisions based on information. And we didn't need it. Maybe I'm being ignorant, but certainly I'm 50 now. When I was growing up, I didn't need that as a life skill taught to me in school. We need to catch up with, because there's so much information now online that that is as important as anything, I think, because it's not just about 
what your value system is and what you've based that on, whether it's reliable or not. But the amount of suffering and anxiety that goes with getting your information from unreliable sources is out of control, I think. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The only place you could get information when I was growing up really was a library. Yeah. <laughs> so that meant it was already published. It had yeah. gone through certain sort of, you know, and that doesn't mean that all books are true, but at least it had jumped through some hoops. Yeah. Now with the internet, not only do you have access to all sorts of data, which can be untrue, once you click on something, you then will be more likely to be presented with data that actually supports that thing that you just clicked through. Awesome. Yeah. You're not getting this broad perspective. Anyway, yeah. we could kind of talk all day around that thing. One ology that I remembered that I think um, probably is very relevant and you've touched on it without actually saying it would be anthropology, yes. I'm sure, because Absolutely. attitudes to sex yeah. across cultures are yeah. incredibly Fascinating. different. Absolutely fascinating. Anthropology is an amazing subject. The research bias is also really interesting. I'm sure you know a lot about that. As you know, it's it's really interesting to know that there's four times the amount of research done on male sexuality than there is on female sexuality. I didn't know that. Yeah, but that applies across health. We have a huge issue yeah. in terms of health because pretty much all research until very very recent years, and I'm talking really only maybe in a decade. Yeah, all research has been done on men. Yeah, um, and that's because women have those pesky hormones that actually might screw up data, which is really ridiculous because then we're prescribed medication yeah. um, that has only been tested on males. And I've spoken about that before with heart medication that's been, had fatal mm. um, consequences. So that's across the board, and that's all across the board in my discipline, which is psychology. Yeah. And I've done an episode on. On this on this is that everything all of our psychological theories are based on research with men and that's yeah. why we have this bias where we say things like oh she's very aggressive for a woman yeah <laughs> yeah you no know, these kind of setting the men as the norm whereas actually it should be the entire population from which you draw your norms and then you exactly. can start to pull out whether there are gender differences yeah. etc and that's something I want to touch on when we go forward before I do that and at the risk of of upsetting anyone in terms of language that I might use. Language is really, really important. We're at a stage where we have had male and female in Western culture, for sure. They're words and they have existed as if they describe the reality, the biology. We know that it doesn't. There is 200 intersex conditions, for want of a using word, where people are not, by definition, fully female or fully male. And as though being fully female Male or being fully male is the only health and that oh, absolutely. in between is, is some kind of a disability or a medical emergency or an ill health. Whereas we know from science that that's just outdated. That's just not the case anymore. It's just completely outdated. And that's yeah. why I kind of faltered over the use of condition. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I, it applies to many other things, not just sex. It applies yeah. with depression. Depression is considered a condition. Now, I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm talking about depression that we might experience as part of natural reactions to daily like, reactions. Yeah. Yeah, they're medicalized. Yeah. yeah. Apologize. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Rather yeah. than, and this applies with sex, rather than saying, well, look, this is the full and amazing range within the human condition. And I just think it would be so much easier to change words than do horrible things like surgeries on babies with mm. um, dubious genitalia. Again, forgive the words. They are not intended to exclude or isolate it. I want to be clear on that. But when we do talk, there are some questions that I will 
be asking that may just refer to male and female, but that's just in terms of language and how we can ask some of those questions. I met you virtually. We've never met in person. And I think it was probably maybe around this time last year, we were both on a panel for an online event that I think was around menopause. I was talking about brain fog and you were talking about sexuality in the menopause, which is something that's important to talk about and has only really started to be talked about recently. And I was absolutely blown away. You know, I mean, I learned stuff about the clitoris that I had never known. And I would consider myself quite an educated individual. So I'm going to dive right in. And that's a really probably terrible word to use. But I'd love you to share with my listeners what you spoke about that night, the internal clitoris. I really just had absolutely no idea. Will you talk a little bit about that? Mm, Sure. And yes, because we're talking about the clitoris, you know, it's important not to go straight to the clitoris like we're doing now in our conversation. (laughs) A little build up, a little tease. So the clitoris, those of us who know about the external part of the clitoris, we know that we have a little knobble, nub, call it what you will, a little pearl, little jelly tot, has lots of different names. It's the glands of the clitoris that is visible, that is external. And that's the bit we tend to focus on because it's if we even know about it, because we're not, the clitoris is not on any diagram in any sex ed. The clitoris is the female sex organ. The vagina is the birth canal. We are taught that incorrectly. We are taught that the male sex organ is the penis and the female sex organ is the vagina. That is incorrect information. But because the clitoris isn't used for anything but pleasure, it gets literally cut out of textbooks and out of trainings and out of teachings. Still, to this day, midwives aren't taught about the clitoris. I mean, it is astounding. So why? What's that about? And that's a whole other podcast. Why can't people? It's the only organ in anybody that is just for pleasure. So they can't double up and say, well, the penis is the sex organ and you pee through it. So we have to, like, maybe if you didn't pee through your penis, they would cut that out as well. I don't know. I doubt it. (laughs) But because it sticks out so much. So the clitoris then is made up of the same erectile tissue and tissue as the penis. They all begin as clitorises in the womb and then they develop into either penises or or a version of that, something in between a clitoris and a a penis. Basically, it's made up of the same stuff. We can see the glands, which would be equivalent to the glands of the penis externally. It's the most sensitive part of the clitoris. That little tiny part of the clitoris has twice the nerve endings of a whole penis. Wow. So when I say rushing straight to the clitoris is not usually a good idea. I really mean it because it can be way too sensitive, way too quickly. And a lot of women would talk about, oh, yeah, it felt good for a little bit. And then it suddenly got really intense and painful and I had to stop. Well, that's because it's too much stimulation too quickly. There's nothing wrong with you. You just need to understand that the clitoris needs very, very gentle approach and touch. It can't be touched like a penis. If you're having sex with a man, men will often touch clitorises the way they would like their penises to be touched, which is hard and fast and straight to the point. And females will often touch penises too gently because they're afraid of hurting the penis because they have a clitoris. So that's a thing, a gendered thing. But the clitoris then goes internal. And really, I'd recommend people Google or go onto YouTube and look up Betty Dodson internal clitoris and you'll see a beautiful drawing of how the internal clitoris fits within our vulvas inside our pelvis 
it uh, takes up to 40 minutes for a woman to get a full erection because you can't get a mouth or a hand around the, the internal clitoris. So again, this is what you were saying earlier. We only have a male arousal model. That's all we're taught, if anything. So it's incorrect because female arousal is very different to male arousal. We take a lot longer to get our erections, but we can get full erections. And when we do, the bulbs of the clitoris, and it's really hard to talk about it without a diagram, but the bulbs of the clitoris, when they're fully erect, they almost wrap around the vaginal canal. So when a woman is really turned on and is having some kind of penetration, she will often, or they, because it's anyone with a vagina and a clitoris, they will often feel lovely pleasure from that. They might even orgasm, but don't trick yourself into thinking it's not a clitoral orgasm. It's just stimulating the internal clitoris via the vaginal canal. Okay. And for some people that works and for others it doesn't. But depending on the research, between 80 and 90% of women will never orgasm through penetration alone because the vagina is not there to do that. The clitoris is there to do that. So it's getting our education. It's, it's so basic to just even understand how the female sexual anatomy works, why it's there and what to do about it. So that's why slow massage of the whole vulva. The vulva is the all the external genitalia and the vagina is the birth canal. It's really important that we use the right language and that we, we understand what to talk about, what to call our body parts. So it's like the vulva is your face and the vagina is your mouth. And so if you went to a doctor and said, I've got a pain in my mouth, but you're talking about a sore cheek, you're going to run into difficulties. It's really confusing. It's disempowering. So it's really important that we begin to use the correct terminology, which we don't. There's a big problem with saying vulva for some reason. I think it's a lovely word. I drive a Volvo because it's as close as I can get to driving a Volvo. <laughs> so the internal clitoris, when we give ourselves time, so 40 minutes is for older women who have slower blood flow, same as penises, blood flow isn't as good as people with penises get older. It's the same for people with clitorises. It takes longer to get the blood flow into the internal clitoris. But if you give yourself that time and patience, then you have a whole new realm of orgasm as a potential. Because you can imagine if you're orgasming within, it, say, three minutes by polishing your jelly tot, by giving your glands of your clitoris a little rub, it's going to be a localized orgasm that's based on those nerves getting stimulated without the rest of the clitoris becoming engorged with blood and becoming erect. So when you allow the full erection to happen, the spasms of orgasm, which are the gorgeous tasty things that you feel, they vibrate right through your pelvis, down your legs and your tummy, your bum. They can go right up through your body and out your head and out your, it can be a very, very different experience. And you know what, listening to you talking about that, I can imagine a lot of women are going, wow, I've <laughs> never experienced that. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, really, when you spoke to me I mean I was of the understanding you know because I came at the time actually one of my guests week before last was Norma Sheehan the actress and she's just been playing Shirley Valentine in All right, yeah. who spoke about the clitoris you yeah. know and that was written in the late 1980s and that was groundbreaking yeah, back then yeah. 
you know, it was probably the first time I ever heard the word, but it was like, oh yeah, now I know about this. And that men think, oh yeah, I'm aware of that. I mean, is the clitoris the same as the G-spot? Is that it? it that- Not at all. And Not I was just going to, it's funny, I was headed there as well, because that's actually a- Yeah, because I think there was- Huge confusion around that. And, and, and I think men, and <laughs> I've been married for 30 years. I'm generalizing here, folks. I could be very wrong, but from reading books and all sorts of things, and I mean fiction and watching television, all the rest, I think men felt that they'd really moved on in understanding that women had a clitoris. But I don't believe that any of them know that it goes further than that jelly tot, that it really is. Well, most women don't. I and mean, most women don't. I didn't until I spoke to you. It, it was only scientifically acknowledged in the 90s wow so you know it's nobody's fault we don't have to feel at all ashamed or embarrassed that we don't know stuff that wasn't available to us they took it out of Gray's anatomy at the start of the last century they removed it from the anatomy book being taught to medics once they realized it wasn't needed for it to conceive So all those doctors and gynies and obstetricians and all the people who can cut a woman or sew a woman up knew nothing about the nerves involved in the clitoris and the internal clitoris. I I mean, it's disgraceful. But so we only got our first imaging, reliable imaging of it in the 90s. So it's still very new to everybody. And it certainly isn't public knowledge yet. We're getting better. I mean, I talk about it all the time. And there are many of people like me who talk about it all the time. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you are talking about it. That is why I dive straight into the clitoris, because I just think it's so important. I will definitely be checking out and I'll put a link to the Betty Dodson video or image because girls and boys and people of whatever gender listening, I think, should check this out because it is something that I think has the capacity to be life changing in a way and and changing to relationships. And learning what to do with it and learning that the biggest thing for people with clitorises is giving themselves permission to be different to people with penises when it comes to their arousal and how they get turned on and how long it takes and what happens because we don't know that we're different. So we feel a lot of people with clitorises feel somehow less than or they're taking, I hear it so much. Oh, I take so long. It takes ages. It gets too much. I worry about my partner getting bored. So I just pretend, I just fake it. Or I just say, don't worry, I'm fine without it. Because they don't realize that they're functioning absolutely perfectly, perfectly, naturally and unhealthily, but they function differently to males. And obviously as well, based on everything, you know, I mean, a lot of Certainly people my generation, I'm sure it's kind of pretty true, although it's kind of gone another level, I'd say, with current younger people. A lot of what we've learned about being sexual, how to do sex, how to have sex actually comes from reading fiction, from watching movies. And porn. And the change, I think, really has come in the porn and the freely available nature of porn, which is a very worrying, to my mind, a worrying trend in that I've heard, and you probably know about this, or you can tell me if what I've heard is not true, but I've certainly talked to some medics who have expressed a real concern about the amount of porn being consumed by young males Mm. who maybe have never engaged in actual Mm. sexual activity with a partner and have that as their own reference yeah. to how sex is. Would that be true? And is I it mean, something we should be concerned about? Yeah, but being concerned about porn to a degree is a red herring. We need to be concerned about education. Porn's not going anywhere. There's no controlling yeah. porn. 
And I believe the only thing we can do is, it's not the only thing, it's a wonderful thing that we can do is we can educate all of us because it is a young person thing because they're more savvy and they're, they spend more time on devices. But everybody gets their education from porn. I work with people of all ages and all types of people. And if the education isn't there, and you watch porn, you think you're learning and you're not. It's like watching, as I say, I find this funny, but I say it all the time. So if people have heard me before, they'll be bored hearing it. But it's like watching The Fast and the Furious and then thinking you know how to drive. It is not reliable and it is not helpful. But it's not just young guys who have had no real experience with real people. People who are having experiences with each other are playing out scenes from porn without communicating, without stopping to see if their person is enjoying themselves, without understanding what real pleasure is. They're doing scenes from porn. They're doing sex. So I hear it more and more that young guys will, there's like four positions that they'll throw their partner into during a sexual encounter. It goes kissing, boob fondling, give me a blowjob. I might go down on you. I probably won't. And then we're going to have these porn positions for sex. And then I have my ejaculation and then we're done. So that is the model used for, and that's the porn model. And porn is aimed at young men. It does a great job. It's a highly successful marketing machine. And until young men and young everyone and older everyone is able to understand the difference between acting and fake and real, we're going to be in this mess that we're in. Absolutely. And sex education, that's the point I was making is it's the only reference as opposed to, you know, we all have. Yeah. You know, we all have like if you read romantic novels with no sex in them and you're talking about relationships, you know, that's fiction and fantasy because you've seen your parents, you've seen friends in relationships. (laughs) Yeah, no, but you know what I mean? You have another reference because sex happens behind closed doors with humans. You don't have that other reference. So it's the sole reference. But, you know, it's really interesting because a lot of female people would have got more of their information from rom-coms, books, magazines. Movies, and it's no more helpful. It's no, it's right. no more helpful. I hear stuff like, if he loved me, he would know. I shouldn't have to tell him about my pleasure or what I like or how to be touched. And it's like, I'm not going to have sex with that person anymore because they're shit in bed. Well, why don't you talk to them about what you'd like? Well, A, I don't know what I'd like because you shouldn't masturbate. Women shouldn't masturbate. And B, he should know if he loves me, he should be able to read my mind. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. But that's the message from those books. And Oh, absolutely. And And the thing is, as well, and I do get that response that people say, you know, number one, yes, nobody has a crystal ball. Yeah. Sex is a sensual experience. You don't fall in love with someone and then decide that you know their favorite food and how to cook it and what will be their favorite food next Friday and what will you talk you learn you ask questions what wine do you like where do you like the holiday there's trial and error (laughs) trial and error that is you know that's the thing as well and I do think the internet has a lot to do with that this pursuit of perfection oh yeah yeah as humans we learn through trial and error. Making mistakes is absolutely critical to 
our own happiness, to our own progress. It is how the human race has evolved. What we're supposed to do. and error. We are supposed to make mistakes. Yeah. So that applies to sex. No more than if I decide to cook you your favorite meal and you decide, God, I really didn't like that. Yeah. You know what? You just didn't like that particular thing. Let's not do that one again. But equally, maybe I could have asked you before I went to the trouble of cooking it and then we could have got something a little more satisfying for both. But the perfectionism is a really, really big block for a lot of people's pleasure. If you are more worried about the size of your penis, how long you can last, they're the two most common things that young men worry about. If you're more worried about what your tummy looks like in the doggy position, or if you're on top, your cellulite on your thighs is showing, you're not in pleasure. You're not focusing on how you're feeling in your body. And if you're not talking and if that's going on in your head, so people think, oh, my God, they see what I see and they're judging me and they think this is gross and I have to protect this lights off only certain positions And guys are thinking, okay, all I have to do is last ages and maybe try and hide the size of my penis. There's no connection in any of that. So people are having, they're doing sex with each other, but they're not having connection with each other. And the best, most delicious sexual encounters, even of the one night variety or a couple of hours variety, is connected. And I'm not talking about oh, I love you and me, 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 because obviously that's inappropriate for someone if you're having casual sex. But being able to look into someone's eyes without shame and say, tell me how to touch you. Yeah. And I'll tell you what I like is a basic necessity to enjoy great sex. And it's not happening. Of course, it isn't. Well, I think there's a couple of things there I want to kind of touch back on. If we don't talk openly about sex, I suppose that happens probably more now than it did when I was in my 20s or whatever. And I suppose I'm talking about talking about it in a meaningful way. That's what I don't think is happening more. Yeah, I think people can talk about it and can say, oh, I want to talk about tits and cocks. And yeah, and, and they can also talk and... about having casual sex and wanting casual sex. But that's not talking about it in that sort of meaningful way. In a way where there's learning. Yeah. If we can't do that just on a day to day basis, you can understand how challenging it is in the intimacy of a room to actually say to someone, actually, do you know what? I don't really like that. Could you move there? You can understand the challenge. Obviously, that is one of the joys of marriage for many people. If you have a marriage where you have good communication, is that over time you really can be very honest with each other and talk about things. I realize that that doesn't necessarily follow that that happens. No, it doesn't. It can be the case in every other area of a couple's life except sex. Mm. And I totally get that. Yeah. You know, it's it's a different thing. It's so fascinating. But, you know, you can have really, really eloquent, confident people in every area of their life. And then it comes to sex and they lose their voice completely. They lose their ability to communicate, to ask for something or to give, to hear what's needed without taking it as criticism. The skills don't seem to transfer from your work or your family life or your friend's life to your sex life. It needs conscious work to be able to go, oh, I have all these skills in other areas of my life. Now, how do I become good at communicating around sex? Doesn't follow. Yeah, you know, and that's what's so funny. In a way, it's just another skill, you know. That's how I see it. We don't just know how to cook or we don't just suddenly become good cooks. We're good orators. 
for anything, you kind of work at it and you know that you can eventually get better, but you have to learn by mistakes as well. And you have to be prepared to make mistakes in order to learn. I think it's so important that perfectionism really, really limits people in what they are willing to risk when it comes to taking their clothes off. As I was saying about how they take their clothes off, whether there's light or dark in the room, whether they're in certain positions, that's a really, really big thing. But the idea of making a mistake in your sexual encounters is absolutely terrifying. And for young people, I really get it. And I didn't have this either when I was a young person. This online bullying, naming and shaming and my ex-girlfriend and all these different ways that people can get spoken about and their name can get damaged by uh, somebody talking about their sexual encounters. I mean, that's a real live, terrifying problem for young people who are experiencing that. It's horrific. So I work with young people who are ready and able and healthy for a sex life, but they are afraid to take their clothes off with someone in case they are judged as not up to scratch and it gets publicized. Wow. There are people choosing not to be sexual because of that. Yeah, I I can't imagine what it must be like to be young and seeking partners and relationships. I, you know, as an older woman now, I mean, I cannot imagine, as I said, I'm in a happy relationship. I cannot imagine ever being with somebody else because I have so many hang ups about my body. At least I know that my husband knows them. Do you know what I mean? And we're comfortable. I cannot imagine myself exposing myself to somebody else. Oh, I imagine exposing myself all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. That's fabulous. Well, because it's fantasy. So I don't have to imagine that I'm going to turn up naked with the tummy I have. It's fantasy. So I am more along the lines of, I don't know, Daenerys Targaryen or, you know, Angelina Jolie and Tomb Raider. Yeah, she's my one, actually. She's my crush. (laughs) That's how I turn up in my fantasies. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I fantasize about being with other people. I'm in a very happy relationship for 12 years, but I fantasize about other people loads. And I love that. It doesn't mean I'm being unfaithful. This is another thing, actually. It's another thing worth talking about fantasy and the fear that you're somehow being uh, unfaithful unfaithful to your partner. Well, actually, what you're probably doing is bringing a little bit of life and a little bit of energy and a little bit of newness into your sexual life with your partner by imagining and having an amazing fantasy. Maybe you share it with them, maybe you don't. Our fantasies are very much our own and we don't need or have to share them with our partners. They can be just ours. But the research is there to show that people who fantasize tend towards a slightly more enlivened experience of their own sex life. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. But people can fantasize about their own partners. It doesn't matter what you fantasize about. So just to say, I'm not saying. Yeah, yeah. And we're all entitled to our inner life, you know, not just around sex. You know, that's kind of just part of the human condition. You can have an inner life and that's good. That's your imagination around all sorts of things. One thing that you spoke about that I think is really important and it links, it's something that I've spoken about across other aspects of our life. And it just applies the same with sex. You were saying if you're concerned about your cellular on your stomach or the size of your penis or whatever while you're having sex, the sex is not going to be very good, to be perfectly honest. And I mean, for me, that's what I talk about for people to just find their joy. I'm not talking about it particularly in relation to sex, but it does apply. I talk to people about finding their joy in their life, find something that they love doing, that the time is irrelevant. I love it. Yeah, 
Absolutely. That yeah. you're totally lost in the moment, whether that's art, painting, singing, whatever it is you do, Gorgeous. you forget yeah. to eat. That's your joy. You lose yourself. And in losing yeah. yourself, you actually find yourself. You're totally connected. And to be honest, I think that really is what makes for good sex because you are utterly and completely in the moment, in the joy of the moment, not thinking about, oh God, am I nearly there? Am I nearly, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. just actually going with the experience in the moment as it happens. You're spot on. Like you teach that in psychology. Think how difficult it is for people to do that sexually, let alone if they can't do it in their everyday life for five minutes and go and walk on the grass or whatever it happens to be that will bring them into their bodies and into their own energy. You're absolutely right. When I'm talking about pleasure, which is why we take our kits off, right? That's the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is pleasure. Why do we get naked? Why do we engage sexually? It is for pleasure. Vast majority of the time, it is not for procreation. So that whole procreation model, that horse has been so flogged, there is no horse left. Oh, it's just been awful anyway. What about people who can't have children? What about those of us who are no longer fertile? But even those of us who can have children are mostly having sex for fun, not yes, hoping yes. to have fun. So, you know, we need to talk about pleasure, but pleasure has shame attached to it, particularly in Irish society. I do believe it's part of our religious upbringing and we still carry a lot of that. But if you're focusing more on pleasure, I believe you can then begin to look at your body rather than look at its faults and its wobbly bits and its ins and outs that you'd rather it didn't have. You can think about how much pleasure your body can provide you with. And so as you were just talking about there, which is what brought it to mind for me, about how to help people understand how to find their joy. That's where I start with people. I don't start sexually because it's a skill to find your joy, right? Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's a lot less scary to start to find your joy through painting or walking or swimming or whatever it is that you want to do. It's sensual. You're using your senses to experience your joy. Sex isn't any different than that, except that it is different, but you're still using your senses. So that's a skill to develop. How do I feel really in my body, really in the moment, really enjoying myself? You start to practice it in a non-sexual way and build your muscles up slowly towards the sexual realm, because the sexual realm will have more worries and more little triggers and blocks in it than perhaps your everyday life might have. So you build your skills and then bring them to the sexual realm a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, I was actually just talking about a talk I gave yesterday and I was talking about curiosity Mm. Um, and curiosity is a wonderful thing. It's really good for your brain. Sex is really good for your brain, too, folks. If it's good sex. If it's good sex. But what I will just throw in there in. Bad sex is bad for your brain. Well, (laughs) yes. What I was going to throw in there was that older adults with an active sex life are less likely to develop dementia in later life. That's the bit. I was throwing in there, um, which is kind of really nice. So I was talking about curiosity in the context of neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is this fantastic capacity that the brain has to adapt and change with learning and enrich the connections between your brain cells. And you really want a densely connected brain. That's a healthy brain. And curiosity enhances neuroplasticity. 
So yesterday I was giving a talk about being curious in life. It had really nothing to do with sex. I was just trying to explain to people to move them away from that academic narrow focus on what learning is. Mm. Um, But learning is everything about everything we do in Mm. the world. It's not just academic. And curiosity enhances our ability to learn. So when we are naturally curious about something, neuroplasticity is enhanced and it is easier to learn. And then that enhanced plasticity can extend then to, you can kind of use it to then work on something that maybe you're less curious about. But you know what? I think we, in a way, have lost curiosity about our own bodies. We've lost curiosities about connecting with our bodies. I read something recently, and I wish I could remember where it was, but it was something, and it just really struck me. It was just one of those things about something to do in terms of appreciating life and getting more joy in life. And it was something like, just spend some time today exploring each other's bodies. No sex, no nothing, just being together and exploring each other's bodies. And I thought that was lovely. That's just sensual. It's just something perhaps when you've been in a long-term relationship, maybe you don't do anymore. It reminds me of something that perhaps happens in in very young teens. Certainly when I was growing up, there was an awful lot of what was called petting. But prior to that, there was gently just getting to know each other and looking at someone's hands and talking while you did those lovely, very, um, they weren't really weren't necessarily sexual. They were a form of bonding, getting to know a person's body, looking at their face, touching their hair, a real getting to know. And and I think probably, I don't know whether that's changed uh, recently, but I think we could invest more time in that. And then in doing that, you can probably then come to that place of understanding pleasure and where pleasure can be found. You've got to find out for the individual you're, you're speaking to what pleasure is for them. And if you're speaking to an anxious person, what you've just suggested there is going to be nothing pleasurable. So you need to find out where a person's at. If, if somebody is really embarrassed about their bodies, they're not going to want to have their body explored by their person. If their person has been critical of their body, they're not going to want to do that. So I know you're speaking about for those who aren't in that situation. Yes, absolutely. No, but it's a very valid and good point that you have raised it. And and it is always different strokes. It's really complicated. It's always complicated. And it's always difficult to give generalized ideas and tips for anything like sex, because it isn't. It so often can't be generalized because we have so many individuals. We all have our stories. We all have the bruises that we bring to our bedroom or or sitting room or kitchen or car or side of the road or wherever we're going to be sexual. You know, we all have our own vulnerabilities. So I think focusing on how we can be okay with our vulnerability is probably really important in regards to reaching a place of pleasure. Because I think, as you said, it's so interesting, isn't it? Um, Forgive my, this is a really simplistic way of describing something you probably know. So tell me if I've got it wrong, but When fear goes up, curiosity goes down. It's very hard to be actively curious when you're in fear. Mm -hmm. And I'm using fear very generally as worry, as anxiety, and as actual fear. So when a person is fearful of being judged, is worried they're not going to be good enough in bed, or is anxious, their ability to be curious is so low that they are more likely to paint by numbers. They're more likely to go, okay, this is what you do in bed. This is, I'm going to do these things that I've seen in porn or on telly that makes you a good lover. I'm going to do those and 
fingers crossed, hope for the best, that the other person won't judge me. And there's nothing in there for them about their own pleasure. So again, we have to step it back, don't we, to what you're talking about, to a space that's safe for people to begin to connect with pleasure and curiosity and then bring it into an area where clothes come off, which is much more vulnerable for most of us. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I do tend to say this, you know, when it comes to any sort of human behavior or interaction, we are not all the same. Different strokes for different folks. Nicely put. And that comes to masturbation. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. But, you know, in terms of just even social contact, we all have a different level of need when it comes to that. Exactly. It really applies across the board. We are all very different. We bring with us very different experiences. We'll all have fundamental things as human beings that have evolved, but we have different genetics. We have different life experiences. And some of those life experiences can be traumatic across the spectrum as well. One person's trauma may completely derail them, whereas the similar trauma in another more resilient individual may not, may actually make them stronger. And actually, now that we have just sort of touched on that. You yourself have your own story of trauma. Just like so many people in Ireland, I'm nothing special. Actually, it's a really interesting thing I have felt throughout my life, um, particularly when the more serious and disgusting cases of clerical abuse and institutional abuse began to be spoken about in Ireland. So I would have been an adult by the time that really began or that I became aware of it anyway. So I'd had some of my most, possibly most of my negative experiences by then. When I was possibly ready to begin to talk about it, I have this thing and I I don't think I'm alone in it, but I'm curious what you think, where because my abuse wasn't as horrendous as some of the stuff these poor people have spoken about, I'm so glad they've spoken about it and it's so important. I didn't feel I had a right to talk about mine because it wasn't that bad. Yes. And yet when I'm working with people and they tell me about an experience they've had and they will inevitably say, but it's not as bad as such and such. And my job as a therapist is to slow that down and go, but it's not about anyone else. Tell me about how it is for you. But I struggle to do that for myself when I'm talking about my own story, because I think, well, here I am about to tell you a little bit from kind of middle range trauma, so to speak. (laughs) I mean, I don't even know, but do you know what I mean? This kind of hierarchizing? I know exactly what you mean. I think we feel that we have to apologize when you know the horrors that have been visited on certain people, but an individual's trauma is an individual's trauma full stop I think we and I think you know in a way there's no harm in saying it I suppose there's a sense certainly for me in terms of speaking about something like that and it applies across the board not Mm. just with sexual trauma but with experiences you want to acknowledge that you know that other people have had worse happen to them so you want to do that But I think it's a fine balance between being able to do that and acknowledge it. And not undermining yourself. And say, actually, but I still had an experience that has had impact on my life and that perhaps I'm struggling with or perhaps that I don't have the tools with or perhaps actually I wish I was as resilient as that individual was, even though my trauma may not have been objectively as bad as their trauma. So I think that's very normal. And as human beings, it is our won't. It is inherent in us to compare. 
Yeah, we just do that, you know, and often we're very happy. You know, there's lovely research around people in jobs on the same salaries, people in jobs. They're perfectly happy with their salary. They think it's justified for what they get. And then they hear that an individual doing the exact same job is getting as little as a penny, 10 pence more than them. And suddenly they are dissatisfied. So we do have this it's just part of how our brain works. We compare. And I suppose that's something when we experience anything, you're trying, your brain is trying to give it context. Your brain is working with it. It's data, it's information. But the difference, I guess, for me with the work I do that I'm really conscious of, there's a difference between comparing and criticizing. You can acknowledge difference without feeling bad about yourself or feeling better than someone else. That's a really good thing. There's learning in that. and there's But it's when it becomes cruel. And so many of us have such cruel inner dialogues that make it so hard to imagine having pleasure when we are feeling so low about ourselves because of what we are saying to ourselves on a repeat, on a record. And so many of us who have cruel voices internally don't even know we have them because they're mm-hmm. so common to us. They're so comfortable or not comfortable, but we're so used to them. We don't even know we're doing it. And that when you're coming from a place internally where you are really beating yourself up, how unsexy is that? How hard is it to really feel acceptable, lovable, sexy, sexual when you are telling yourself all these really cruel things? I think, and this applies again to our whole sense of self, our sense of who we are. You know, your brain really is just this data processing machine and it's not infallible. It just takes information um, from various places. And when it comes to sex, so a lot of my early information and for women of my generation related to sex was sex was dirty. Sex was something that wasn't spoken about. Sex was something that was preserved for married people alone to experience any sort of sexual desire was just not appropriate. Mm. And even one of my early memories, and it wasn't even of sex, was you'd go to a disco as a teen. If someone you fancied, you'd slow danced with them. They walked you home. And in this particular instance, I was walked home by my boyfriend at the time. I'd say I was about 15. And we kissed outside the gate. A long, passionate teenage kiss Mm. that never went any further than that long, passionate teenage kiss. You'd look at people in the disco and you'd wonder, would they ever come up for air? That's kind of what Mm. used to happen in teenage discos when we were kids. And I remember noticing a light flickering, you know, and kind of go, what's that? And it was the light in our house in the hall (laughs) flicking on and off. Now, (laughs) you'll know where I'm coming from. A lot of younger people go, what's going on? I came in and my mother was standing in the hallway waiting for me. And she said, if you were a dog, I would have bought water out to throw it over you. Wow. Yeah, but I don't think that was that uncommon. As far as my mother was concerned, and actually for those, the reference was basically if dogs had sex with each other on the street, sometimes they would get stuck and people would. They always get stuck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So people would come out and throw water over them. And cats. Cats are even worse. Yeah, Really? And so I presume it reduces the size of the penis and then they can become unstuck or uncoupled to steal a phrase from Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) Excuse me. But yeah, so that kind of thing sticks 
with you. Oh God, that's 40 years ago. Thankfully, I've kind of got over that sort of thing. But it's still those kind of things are there for a lot of people. So whatever your early kind of experiences, your brain will just take that as a piece of data. Your brain doesn't make any value judgments. It just takes information in and whatever other information that the church said or whatever other information that, you know, friends said or what you hear when you're watching television, your brain is just taking all those bits of information. And unless you consciously assess and make value judgments about that information and decide to work to discard some of that information, that's just all there. It's just all there inside, you know, unconsciously forming your attitudes to sex, influencing your experience with sex and all other things in life. So that's one thing for me that I'm passionate about is to just get people, whatever it is you're working on, to look at, even if it's pen and paper. And I'm not a therapist and I'm open to be contradicted, but certainly in areas not related to sex, this is something that can be really helpful. Write down your feelings, your thoughts, your attitudes, and then try and trace back where they came from and are they valid are they truthful and I mean that often comes to things like people saying oh gosh I always thought I'd be useless academically or I'm bad at English because a teacher told them they were bad at English when they were seven look at that and go that's not valid it's not useful I need to work to get that out of that composite of who I am. And I just think probably it could be helpful to do something similar in terms of the ideas that we have that influence how we think about and behave sexually, because Mm. we've just let all this information come in unconsciously. And your brain is just making a best guess. It's taking whatever information it has. But we do have the power. We have a conscious brain that can assess the validity of that and then work to change it Mm. for the better, for health, Mm. I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's certainly a part of therapy for sure. Right, right. Okay. The way I do therapy anyway, yeah. There's something that I'm interested to talk about. It's come up a couple of times throughout the course of various interviews and episodes, and that's around the issue of consent and consent, not consenting, not really consenting, deciding to just go with it because you love the person or whatever. Perhaps you've decided you're going to pleasure your partner out of love. Yeah, it's just that whole area to me can be somewhat of a minefield and is it as simple as yes and no or no No, because we're taught most of the discussions I've seen about consent in Ireland have been coming from a sex negative place so in other words it's about threat punishment what will stand up in court who's guilty who's to blame and so you're pitting people against each other before they even touch each other It's also a very gendered argument. We don't hear, I mean, certainly people who are non-binary never get a mention and they're out there trying to navigate all of this as well. This is why sex positivity isn't because we don't even know the questions to ask. We ask questions, but if they're from a negative perspective, the answers we get are going to skew our ideas of how things are. And that's what happens around sexuality in Ireland all the time. The conversation around consent for me in Ireland has just missed the point because it's all about how do we protect our boys from getting accused of rape? How do we protect our girls from being raped by guys? And we put all the emphasis on what a girl should do, say where, where she should be. And she's the gatekeeper and that message, so, so the, the conversations often begin with how do we keep our girls safe? How do we teach consent? 
and we hear it now more and more often, and it's really good that we do, you know, well, where do the boys come into that equation? Because when you say we've got to keep our girls safe, you are directly implying that all boys are prospective perpetrators. And I have a real problem with that on behalf of boys. I have a real problem with it. I am very, very glad that you have said that. I have a real problem with the language around these kind of conversations. I'm married to a man. I have two sons and uh, one son-in-law. So they're surrounded in my family by wonderful, lovely men. And I do think that what we do does a disservice to many men. It does. Boys. Boys, let's just, Boys. this is this is the conversation about how do we teach children consent? Absolutely. So boys are, per- it's so backward and offensive. I raise boys and in terms of trying to protect them, <laughs> I had to have those kind of conversations with them. I talked to them about sex and tried to say, look, sex is no different than eating, you know, your food, your diet, your exercise, you've got to try and do it in a healthy, healthful way. But when it comes, one thing that I had said to mine, and this is probably terrible, but I had said to them in terms of trying to protect them is particularly when it comes to perhaps if it was outside of a relationship, so to speak. And I would say to them, look, if it's a good idea this Saturday night, it'd probably be a good idea next Saturday night. So it might be a good idea to wait till then to give that sense of making sure. And also having said to them, if an individual has consumed too much alcohol, they are not in a position to consent legally and you need to be mindful and aware of that and that's kind of a terrible position to be in to have those kind of conversations that's the stuff that is no offense to you because there's no other information out there for people trying to help their young people with consent but it's that's really difficult to navigate for young people who are out absolutely out at nightclubs getting pissed that's what young Irish people do because they're repressed and they don't know how to be themselves without alcohol I'm not talking about your I don't know about your sons I'm not talking about generalizing always a very dangerous thing to do so when you are trying to protect one person from another you're in trouble because Mm -hmm. you're already creating a situation where one person is against the other when they should be a team if they're going to take their clothes off with each other. So it's not that difficult. It's just that we don't know what questions to ask and we don't know what to be talking about. So we just right wring our hands. So we should be talking about pleasure. Okay. It's really simple. Think about it. First of all, you have to understand what pleasure is, how pleasure feels in the body, what pleasure looks like on another person's face, in their voice, in their body language. That's all stuff that can be taught. It's non-sexual stuff. It can be taught through other kinds of touch. It can be and and it can be learned very clearly. Yeah. If I look at your face and I'm thinking, gosh, she's hot. I'd love to get a bit of her now. And you're not looking back at me with a hell yeah look on your face. That's a no. Yeah. We're not looking for how do I creep along the fine line between yes and no? And, oh, she didn't say no. So that's a yes. That's where it's so complicated. And that's pitting one. But he will win over her because she didn't quite say yes or no or she was ambiguous. Then it's going to be her fault and he gets victory over her. That's all disgusting to me because it makes both sets of people combative and takes compassion out of the equation. So. 
what I would say to people is take gender out of it. Why does it have to be gendered in the first place? Why does it have to be protecting girls from boys? We want everyone to be safe. We want everyone to be safe. So there's that. And then, so I want if somebody is unconscious on the floor in a party and they're male, I want another male to go and feel they can go and pick that person up and help them, not go, yeah. oh, I only help girls, or he might be gay, or you know, all this dreadful stuff that happens. I also think if we are talking about pleasure, so we need to slow down. What does pleasure feel like in your body? And you know this, you can teach children this at any age and you can teach them about it non-sexually. How do you know if somebody is feeling pleasure? It takes all the edge off the coercion because you're not looking for, well, they said yes, but I could tell they weren't fully into it, but they said yes, so I'm okay in court. It takes all of that out of it. We're not looking for, oh, okay, then you can do that to me. We're looking for, yeah, I want to do that because I'm going to feel pleasure when I do it. That's simple. It's really simple. Yeah. And, you know, I've said this over and over again, that I have, it, it is one concern that I have had of the internet and this kind of swiping to date and all that sort of stuff, because when I was a teenager growing up, you hung around with other teenagers, right? And you learned how to be with other people. So there was always, oh, I kind of fancy him or whatever. And you'd be constantly reading. Did you see the way he looked at me? Did you see that sort of little smile? And you would discuss those little nuances with your friends. And you also learned that step, say, maybe close to them and they might step back and you go, oh, OK, I kind of crossed some sort of line there and a boundary. And so we had these lots and lots of human interaction from puberty kind of onwards where you're interacting and you're learning how to be with other people. Now, it's not perfect, but you have a place where you can learn through trial and error. And I just think that sort of human interaction has gone a lot. And a lot of stuff is happening online. And you and I, we're miles apart. And you know what? If I go right up to you on the screen, it's going to feel weird, but you're not smelling my breath. You're not kind of getting those nuances and social interaction is brilliant for your brain because it is a really complex activity. And so being with people and learning to be with people is a really complex cognitive activity because your brain is reading all those little nuances. And I think what you've just said there is absolutely Spot on. If we turn all that nuance, that understanding of human interaction to a yes or a no, that's actually what's getting us into trouble as yeah. opposed to people yeah. learning how to interact. Anything that creates a binary or a black and white is going to be incredibly damaging and dangerous for, for people to navigate. The yes or no is absolutely not working. I mean, we just have to look at what's working and what isn't. This isn't a theory you and I are just making up. This is happening in our society. People are not clear about consent. They don't feel, you know, rightly so. I understand that why you would be worried about your sons and wanting to help them to navigate that. Of course, that's good parenting. That's happening all the time. And it doesn't seem to be getting clearer for people about how to do this. So this is why I, I've been thinking about consent a lot. And how it can be taught. And I get asked it a lot. And I really think the pleasure model is the simplest way to do it. If you are not feeling pleasure, 
So first you have to know what pleasure is, and then you need to give people the skills to communicate, to not only be able to say no, but to hear no, or to hear yes, or to hear, I'm going to wait till next week and see how I feel about this. And that there isn't this status connected to sexual conquests, which is what it is at the moment. There's a very, very strong toxic masculinity that would insist on conquest and on getting one over on somebody and on taking power over somebody and mistaking that for empowerment. I think as well, when you talk about pleasure, and I'm thinking about it from a male perspective, we have this sense of a male persisting despite the female not particularly wanting it. But if that male is properly educated about their own pleasure, they will understand that pleasure is much bigger than a sexual organ experiencing arousal or or whatever, that it actually pleasure is an overall thing. You feel it with all of your body and all of your mind and all of your energy absolutely you are only feeling it in the penis which you know you've hit on something that I work with a lot with men and young men in particular but all men is that they only allow themselves to feel physical pleasure from their penis nice they don't even know any other parts of their body can that they've all the same nerve endings as anyone else has in their skin and that they have this amazing potential to feel touch that will be enlivening and exciting and titillating and all those words. They don't know that. So, of course, they're going to do what you're saying. You're so on the money with this that as long as guys think that's their only way to get pleasure. Yeah. They're going to go for it. And then they're being told, we all expect you to go for it. Yeah. Then they're being told we're protecting the girls from you because you're a possible perpetrator. Then they're getting no education and they're going to porn because they're healthily curious and they're trying to learn more and find their place in society and figure out who they are. Put all of those things together, along with a very healthy patriarchy. And we're into a position where males are being pitted against females and they will win. Yeah. Because when they do it that way, of course, they're going to. But I'm sure that there's a lot of men out there who are almost afraid to engage for fear of how that will come across or that they'll make a mistake or that they'll cross a line. I'm Again, you know, yes. Right. But again, yes. But that's and I really feel for men who there are so the vast majority of men are men with the conscience and men with empathy and men who would never be any problem to anybody, you know. It would be a lot easier for those men to have a really solid place in our society if we were able to see the difference between those men and the men who don't have boundaries and maybe do want to perpetrate because those people exist as well. While we club it all in together, all men are the same and all men are suffering with the same difficulties and all men, while we're doing that without teaching them how to be healthy and boundaried and respectful, it's very difficult to be able to spot the people who actually we need to worry about. Yeah. And we have a so distorted world. Just briefly on the pleasure thing, you know, if we educate men about what pleasure is in their own body, but also the pleasure of giving pleasure, the pleasure of witnessing pleasure is all kind of part of that. And that would really help people in terms of the consent aspect of it. Am I giving pleasure here? You know, and not the pleasure that I've learned women want from porn. Yeah, that isn't what women want. Um, yeah. Just to say something about that, and you're, you're, you know, what you're talking about is 
the feast of sex, which I think is just such a beautiful way to teach it as well. We can consume all sorts of meals, can't we? And sometimes we just want a McDonald's and we want it quick and we want it fast and we want to eat it and we'll be hungry again and blah, blah, blah. And it's good and it's lovely and delicious and that's fine. That hit the spot. <laughs> exactly. And that sex is great. But if you're only eating McDonald's all the time, it gets boring. You're not learning anything. You're not expanding your horizons. So I like to remind people or to teach people for the first time about the joy of a Michelin star sex experience where you might go for a tasting menu and it might take three hours to have an experience where you are plenty of time for a female to get there. (laughs) Which is what you're saying is slowing down and really enjoying the feasting on each other's bodies, not just from sexual acts, but the looking, the smelling, the touching, the feeling, all the the energy you share is the feasting. And not only that, but the anticipation of that can start way before anyone gets sexual. And that's what women in long-term relationships and women who are a little bit older, they need that. It isn't like we choose it. It's actually a necessity for our turn on and for our arousal is for it to begin non-sexually with the anticipation, the flirt, the reminder that your person finds you hot, interesting. They want to hang out with you. Those are the things that get a woman ready to begin any kind of physical foreplay. And without that, it's very hard for a woman to just flip the switch and get straight into, oh, you're feeling my boobs now. I need to be turned on in five minutes yeah. because you'll be turned on in five minutes. Then I need to have my orgasm within the next three minutes after that because you'll be ready to have yours and we'll all be done in 15 minutes. And I was doing the washing up 20 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work for women in long term <laughs> relationships of any age and women who are getting older. The converse of that is that when men only understand or allow themselves to feel pleasure through their penis, it's harder for them to get out of the McDonald's sex or to get out of the we always go to the same pub on a Sunday and have our Sunday roast there. It's hard to get out of that because it's limited. They limit their partner and how she or they or he can love them is limited to touch my Mickey. Yeah, (laughs) you know, however you're going to do that. And so, again, feasting, making mistakes, not being sexual throughout your sexual encounter, but being sensual. I love the idea of a tasting menu. I think that's kind of a great idea, really. Yeah. You can try and say, oh, that one's not for me. This one is. Oh, gosh, I'd love to have more of that. Maybe we'll expand on that the next time we we feast. It gives an opportunity. I want to touch back away from that because I think it's something that's important in that bigger context around the victim blaming and the putting the onus on the female. There's a bigger context and, and it's something that kind of really jumped out at me. And I can't remember the name of the woman there recently in the United Kingdom who was murdered ultimately transpired that it was a a police officer who had done it. She walked home and it was during lockdown. And of course, there was the victim blaming. What was she doing walking home alone? That's one question. But what happened as a consequence of that was that there was like a curfew for women not to go out for their own safety till they found. Now, my argument is, to me, that's the worst form of victim blaming, because really what should happen is there is a male perpetrator out there. So no males should be allowed out 
under curfew until such time as that perpetrator is found. Now, the amount of people who are on social media, males and females said, don't be ridiculous. You can't expect all males to stay home just because there's one male raping and killing females. Well, why is it then that it's okay to expect all females to stay at home and all females cannot stay at home? Any man in their right mind who understands what is going on and who has nothing to be fearful of should say, absolutely. Why don't we do that? Because then we actually have a chance of catching this perpetrator because he'll be the guy that's out prowling or the guy who doesn't have a reason to be out. And until we really start shouting down those imbalances, Mm. nothing will change. Having said that, there's something that I want to say, and I've often been afraid to say it. I haven't said it on social media. I've become very cautious what I say on social media because it's so easy to be misinterpreted and then cancelled as a consequence. And I hate to say it, particularly by the feminist community. They can be very unforgiving. Not all of them, again, generalizations aside. But one thing that I feel, so To just start with an analogy to explain where I'm going to go. We have traffic lights, okay? And when the man is red, you don't cross the road. When the green man appears, it is safe to cross the road. You should be able to cross that road without fear of being knocked down. You should just be able to cross that road. However, it does not make any sense to cross that road without looking left or right even though the man is green, because you need to protect your life. Somebody could come flying through and break that red light. They shouldn't do so. Similarly, my sons, now they're in their 30s now, so they're well grown up, but we live in a nice area. Going out in town was town. In between town and the nice area was an area that was pretty dangerous to walk home through. Now, my son should be, we only live two miles from the city centre. They should be able to walk home any night free of fear, etc. Unfortunately, they can't because there are individuals who perpetrate violence on people going through. So whilst they should have a right to do so, it is not in their best interest to do so. And so they would get a taxi home. Now, if I dare take that analogy to an instance of rape for a female in certain circumstances, that becomes just this really hot topic that says I'm victim blaming, which I am absolutely not. Everybody should have the right. I believe I should have the right to walk naked through the streets if I so wished, but I also should have the right to be able to walk home safely. But I also know that I cannot do so in the city in which I live. And that also if I drink alcohol and I do drink alcohol and have drunk alcohol to amounts where I may not be making rational decisions, that I may take risks that I should not take. How can we have that conversation about protecting yourself in a rational way without it then being confused with victim blaming. It's a conversation that I've really been finding very hard to have because I want to protect women. For me, I think it's, and this is kind of going off sexual bit a bit and more into a talk about feminism, I think, but I think for me, it comes down to what's new about talking about whether a woman should or shouldn't walk a particular place at night. We know that. We know that society isn't safe, and that goes for whatever gender you are in certain areas. We know that. 
but there is an overemphasis on women getting attacked. If a guy walks home and gets attacked, he won't be asked what he was wearing, how much he That's true. Wearing. So that's where it becomes victim blaming. When a guy gets mugged, the first question isn't, why were you there on your own? That's the difference. Of course, the reality is society isn't safe and it is way less safe for women and for trans people and for gay people. It is way less safe for these people. So when the conversation is led by straight, cisgendered, middle-aged white men as to how women should conduct themselves in those instances, it doesn't feel like it's about protecting her. It feels like it's about judging her and wanting to keep her in a certain sphere of her life in order to allow men to continue to do what they want to do. And I'm not saying that all white, middle-aged, heterosexual men are like that, but I'm saying that quite often the men who have these opinions about this and the women who have these opinions oh, yeah, absolutely. would fit into a category where they haven't really considered the difference in how they speak themselves about an attack or an assault and the kind of attack and assault and on whom. So I totally get that. My dilemma is how do we get the message across to young women that having the right to behave how you so wish and be safe? (laughs) That's the question. So I think Absolutely. We need to call out the victim blaming. We need to say she should be allowed to walk home wherever she wants. She should be allowed to do this. She should be allowed to do that. I just feel that the danger of that is that it's like telling young women to take those risks. So what I'm trying to find is how do we temper that? How do we get the message across to people? Now, hold on a second. She should be allowed to do whatever she wants. Well, we could stop gendering it for a start. Well, true. Yeah, but people should be allowed to do whatever they wish, but also to just tell the girl, well, you see, there I am again, the girl. Um, I am, there I am again. But it's just for me, that's a fear I have is that by saying, because I was that kind of person, I should have the right to do whatever I want and therefore I will. And you actually really do need someone tempering saying, of course, you should have the right. We're working towards that. Oh, my God, we've been talking so long. So many things. We definitely have to have you back on again because there are so many things. I have two questions from people that messaged me. I said I was having you on. I do them a disservice if I don't talk to them. Sure. Happy to. I'll definitely have you back (laughs) on again. There's just so many things. So we barely touched on the fact that past trauma and past sexual trauma can impact on sex now. What I actually was asked by one person was, can a traumatic experience that has nothing to do with sex, so violence or post-traumatic stress disorder, affect your sex life? Yes, it can, of course. Just like a sexual assault can affect other areas of your life. You'd know about this. It's how it affects the brain and how we react to certain triggers or stimuli. So you could have been hit and then be in a sexual situation and there's something about the touch, the taste, the smell, the the room that can trigger your trauma. And it happens in the sexual realm. So there's that. There's also the carrying and holding of trauma in our bodies that sometimes will only get released through a physical touch that may be sexual. So yes, it can most definitely happen. 
Yes. And this individual, for example, said vaginismus, is that is that the okay. right thing? Or body in survival mode. I mean, that's what I would have thought is what happens. Well, yeah. And, and vaginismus is a protection. You know, people think that there's something terribly wrong with their bodies when they their vaginal muscles clamp up. But usually, usually they clamp up in reaction to something that hasn't felt safe or comfortable for them. So if a woman has been having uncomfortable sex repeatedly, it's not uncommon that her vaginal muscles will try to prevent that from continuing to happen. So we need to go back a few steps when it comes to a more generalized trauma. The feeling of having somebody penetrate you, it can be so incredibly overwhelming and intense it can feel like an overpowering. And so your muscles can have that same reaction, even though the overpowering or the assault that happened before wasn't sexual, it may have a similar energy to it somewhere that gets triggered in your body. So absolutely, yeah. And the other question was, a woman asked me, she was hoping to deal with her menopausal vagina using Vagifem, but that she's found she's 61 years old. She's yeah. single. She's really developed a fear of the act and is kind of reluctant to get involved with a sexual partner. She doesn't say whether male or female. I wonder what her fear is, because her fear could be around her body or being vulnerable, or it could be that she's going to feel pain because if she's using Vagifem, it's possible. And I don't know that she may have experienced some pain and discomfort that got her onto some good treatment and that treatment will really help. We have to make sure that we're using it enough. So again, it depends when you start using it and how much you needed it before you began using it. So if you have become really dry and uncomfortable, you're probably going to need to use Vagifem every night for two weeks and then lower it and be on it for the rest of your life. Some doctors under prescribe it. I don't really know why and might say, oh, you just need it twice a week. Twice a week is a maintenance dose. It's not a curative dose as far as I understand it. So it's more important to take it a lot more to begin with to get your vagina back into a better shape before you go into a maintenance dose. Yeah. And I would imagine, given that she started the question with menopause, that that's, that's around what it is. And just to say that she then she could begin by exploring herself with some self-love, with some gentle touch and exploration of herself with lots of lube, get an organic lube like Yes Lube, use plenty of it. And just massage the outside of the vulva, massage for a while, do some nice deep breathing, gently massage the entrance to the vagina without penetrating with anything and see how that feels first. And if that feels okay, then try one fingertip and build up from there going further. And the depth of the penetration isn't as relevant as the width of the penetration. So when you've had a vagina that hasn't had the treatment for a while, it can take a while for the muscles to get the elasticity back. So that's best done by yourself on your own with no pressure. And then you can enter a sexual encounter with another person confident that you won't be in pain. I think that's fabulous advice. And it actually reminded me, I did a fabulous episode with Meg Matthews around the menopause and she was just advocating use it or lose it, you know, masturbate, 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 keep it in use, keep it working well. Ordinarily, what I do at the very end is ask you for tips and advice, but you've got so many pieces of advice, folks. One, I am going to do is really just devote Thursday's booster episode to Emily and she is going to share her four golden rules. Yeah I mean I've given it a grandiose title call it what you will don't call it anything but so four guides if you like golden guides there's a new one I haven't called it before to having good sex. 
My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Superbrain is a labour of love, born of a desire to empower people to use their brain to thrive in life and attain their true potential. You can now go ad-free on patreon.com forward slash superbrain for the price of a coffee. Please help me reach as many people as possible by sharing this episode. Imagine if we could get to a million downloads by word of mouth alone. I believe it is possible. I believe that great things happen when lots of people do little things. Visit sabinabrennan.ie for the Superbrain blog with full transcripts, links and the like. Follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Tune in on Thursday for another booster shot from me and on Monday for another fascinating interview with an inspiring guest. Thank you for listening.